was that again? Lego Manilium. And I, I couldn't hear the rest, but it's a long, long name. Legos, did you say? Yes, okay. That was good. Well, if you think I'm bad going to Chicago for that American girl, Rob went to Europe, to Legoland. I mean, that's how much he was into Legos. Him in August. Uh, anybody else? Another? Yes, over there. A camera? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's, I, I think I remember my first camera. That was always so neat. Anybody else? Yes, sir? Matt? Yeah. It's just hard, hard to know where to begin. What's that? What do you say? Oh, Mickey Mouse? Well, that's a good one, Max. Sure. And anybody else? Now, here's another... Well, let me go on. Here's another question for you. Now, what's the greatest gift you've ever given somebody? Yes, sir. A book. Those are great gifts. Yep. Do you have one? Okay. That's good. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Oh, you can't tell me. So the greatest gift he has to give has yet to be given, and that's tonight, so he can't tell what it is. Well, that's neat. And anybody else want to throw in one there? Another one. Uh, the greatest gift you've given. What's that? Yeah? We missed that, Grant. I think I missed that. A book, huh? A frog book? Oh, okay, frog book. Yeah, I give, we got that. Well, okay. Well, now, maybe one final question for you guys. What is special about tonight? What's special about Christmas? Yeah. Tonight's Christmas Eve. Yep. What's that? The birth of Jesus. And you know, what's kind of amazing, that may, in fact, the fact that Jesus is having his birthday at Christmas, right? You know, that's probably the greatest gift any of us could ever be given, is that Jesus came to earth to be our Savior. In which you agree, that's probably the greatest gift of all. And what could be one gift we could give Jesus for the gift he's given us? It's just our love for him. Yes, sir. A cake. We bet. I think that's a great idea. Yes. Our life. Yes. Cupcakes. That sounds fun. Love. You know, those are all some great, great answers. In fact, I think maybe we should go home and make a, a cake, Julie, when we get home and some cupcakes. And then we also want to give God our, our love and our lives. I think all those are good answers. What do you say we give these kids, kids a hand? Now, kids, when you leave tonight, after the last song, which is Silent Night, as you walk out the door, I think, I think there's some girls, Fiona and Mary, Mary Joy, maybe, I'm not sure who, but some, some folks are going to give you a little present as you leave, okay? Alrighty. Let's give these kids a hand, alright? Good to be with you. You guys can go back to your chairs where your folks are at. Uh, kids say the darndest things. <laughs> 
But, uh, well, Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to this year's uh, Christmas Eve service at the firehouse. And uh, it's just fun to be here and um, have this time to worship the Lord together and remember what um, the meaning of this season is all about, that Christ came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. And we're so excited, I'm excited to be here with all of you to, to just reflect on that fact here tonight. And, uh, you know, after I'm done uh, speaking, Dennis and the group will come back up and lead us in the song, Silent Night. Uh, I think I'm going to grab this candle over here and uh, also start candle lights going through that last song. So everybody grab a candle and uh, we'll be turn the lights down low for that last song tonight. Well, you know, to get started here today, uh, I thought I would uh, read an excerpt from my diary. You know, if I thought that might, you know, perk you up a little bit. So. And uh, I see a few people leaning a little more forward in their chairs than you were before I said that. But it is a little excerpt. I don't really keep a diary, but every now and again I'll, I'll write something down that happened to me and try to make a story out of it. And so by way of introduction to tonight's message, uh, let me begin with this story for you guys. We were traveling on a sub-zero, blustery, windswept stretch of Interstate 80 in the heart of Nebraska that cold, wintry night many years ago. It was freezing inside that mountain-bound bus, though the heater never tired. Our spirits were high as we all anxiously looked forward to our annual Christian Collegiate Ski Conference in Colorado. Then disaster struck. Our ice-covered, dilapidated bus and only link with survival coasted to a stop along the roadway's edge. <laughs> within minutes, within minutes, the penetrating Arctic cold took over the bus. <laughs> And indescript huddled mounds of humanity clung to one another beneath piles of blankets and coats in a futile attempt to keep warm. Columns of steam ascended upward toward the ceiling of the bus from frost-bitten, lifeless forms below. <laughs> waited and waited while the best mechanics we could muster from among us worked on the problem with the best tools we could muster from among us. Some undoubtedly fashioned from our own eating utensils. After about one hour in what seemed like eternity, one student stood up in that icy, cold bus among the huddled masses yearning to be warm, well really yearning to survive, and raised his arms and his voice above the muddled murmurs and boldly cried out, in the name of Jesus, I pray that within... And then he paused, apparently deliberately calculating in his mind what he dare believe God for. I pray that within five minutes, this bus would be fixed. He then victoriously returned to his seat and to his silent prayer of gratitude. The discontent undertones in that bus turned to complete silence as an element of suspense descended upon that otherwise disgruntled, suffering group. 
We waited half wondering if his desperate prayer so boldly proclaimed just might be answered. And on the other hand, half wondering what would become of this pathetic soul when his prayer was not answered. <laughs> Would he be able to pick his dignity and self-respect up off that frozen bus floor? Would any one of us be able to help him if he could not? But most of all, would anyone on that bus still believe in the existence of a personal God and when this personal God if and when this torture ever ended? The seconds turned into minutes. The minutes seemed to turn into hours as they passed by, one by one, in utter silence. One minute, two minutes. Not wanting to be obvious, eyes cautiously slid to their corners and slyly, slyly gazed at watches, now inconspicuously face up on each and every lap. Three minutes. The seconds seemed to pass without any fear of the potential consequences that lay ahead. Four agonizing minutes passed. Countdown commenced silently and simultaneously in all of our minds. Ten. Nine. Is there a God? Eight. Seven. Can he hear prayers? Six. Five, does prayer make a difference? Four, three, are we alone in the universe? Two, one, is our God a personal God? Zero, minus one, minus two, minus three. Someone help, someone say something I silently thought as I groped for the right words. Well, for any words. Nothing was said by anyone. Silence ruled. Our comrade's head slumped into his hands. Watches resubmerged into their sleeve lairs. Students returned to their muddled murmurs. And in time, the bus was patched up, at least until the next eminent breakdown. And in time, quite a bit of time, but in time, our fallen friend picked up his dignity and self-respect and continued on with his life, as did the rest. Or did they? Did everyone on that bus continue on with the firm conviction that God sees me? Or was this incident an additional imperceptible brick in the wall of doubt that there is a personal God ruling the universe? Well, you know, guys, I just thought I'd read that little story. And uh, as a, maybe just as uh, setting the stage for tonight's message, and that really is the question tonight, is our God a personal God? And you know, I've talked with folks who even believe that there is a God. They just don't believe he's really a personal God. And of course, there are those that don't believe in God at all. But you know, how important is it that uh, our God is really a personal God? And tonight... You know, I'd really like to take a little bit of time to talk about to talk about the fact that I really believe the Bible teaches that not only is there a God, He's a personal God. He knows you. 
He sees you. He's concerned for you and for me. He's not just a great, powerful God. But that's the topic of our message here tonight at the Firehouse Christmas Eve service. And you know, I think sometimes people have a hard time putting power and love together. You know, a lot of times it's easy for people to think of God as a powerful, almighty God. You know, that created, well, created the earth, created the universe. I mean, what an incredible creation this mighty, powerful God has made. But sometimes, again, we may sometimes wonder, sometimes in our trials and challenges of life, but does he really see me? Am I really, uh, is he really mindful of the challenges I'm facing? And again, I would have to say over and over again, the Bible says yes. Yes, he is a mighty God that created this universe. But he's also a personal God. I love this verse. Number one, point one, God is powerful, but he's also personal. From John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this Word was with God from the beginning. This Word was God. This Word created the world, the universe. This Word was the Almighty God. This Word was uh, the uh, most powerful God of all, right, that created everything. But if you look, this Word was also the one who became flesh and lived among us. Now that's a personal God. That's a personal, all-powerful God. The God that created the universe, through whom all things were made, and yet the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we actually beheld His glory. Now, the Apostle John wrote this passage. He also wrote 1 John. He says, What we have seen and beheld, and what we have handled, what we've touched, these things we proclaim to you, so that you also may have faith and fellowship with us. John was just sharing this great word that he had the privilege of knowing and seeing and hearing and touching. He wanted everybody to know that he, what he experienced. The great God, the powerful God, but he also experienced the personal God that he could actually talk to, who would listen to him, that was mindful of him, that was his friend even, Jesus. And so we turn uh, to this passage. And this is a passage I shared some months back, but I'd like to share it tonight. You know, I'd like you to read the overhead as I read another psalm. This is Psalm 53, and you'll be reading Psalm 14. Okay, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. But pretty close, huh? Verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Again, pretty close rendition. Verse 3. Everyone is turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will the evildoers never learn those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on God? There they were overwhelmed with dread where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you and you 
put them to shame for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel. Oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. You know, those two psalms are almost identical. And you can wonder, well, why on earth would there be two identical psalms in, in the Old Testament? Well, there's a subtle difference. Psalm 53, the one that I read, for the word God uses the word Elohim, which is the Jewish word for God, meaning the God Almighty. The God that created the heavens. The God that created the earth. That great and powerful, mighty God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no Elohim. But in Psalm 14, the psalm that you read, the name for God is changed. It's different. Jehovah, the covenant God, the relational God, the personal God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no personal God either. So in both of these psalms, almost identical, the distinction is whether it's the powerful God is in reference or the personal God is being referenced. And again, it underscores the fact that there is, there is a, a, a God and he is a personal God. The Bible teaches that. And yet, you know, you can sometimes wonder, you know, doesn't it seem somewhat strong to say a person's a fool for not to believe in a God or a personal God? That seems strong, yet that's what the Bible says. And I'm not sure that it even totally speaks to our intellect or speaks to any thing necessarily about us other than our creed and our conduct are often inter intertwined. And I think there are those that want to sustain depravity, sustain their darkness, and avoid the fear of retaliation. And so they reject a God. They reject a personal God, perhaps. Maybe not even knowingly so. But in any case, God has made it abundantly clear that he does exist and that he created us. One way, one proof is the fact that he himself became a person. You know, there's an interesting Latin word, carne, and that Latin word means flesh. And it's where we get the, the word, um, it's where we get the word carnival, which means being given to your flesh. It's where we get the word carnivorous, you know, someone who eats flesh or meat only. It's also where we get the name incarnation, which means to become flesh. And that's what Jesus did. He became flesh, as we read already, and dwelt among us. But his becoming flesh was predicted from the very beginning, even way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned. The promise was given as God spoke to the evil in the serpent, spoke to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. Satan's wound upon the offspring of the woman would not be a death blow. It would hurt. It would be a wound. But the death blow would be the offspring of the woman's crushing the head of the serpent. And that's what Jesus did. This verse, way back in Genesis, is predicting the coming of an offspring. Now that's about all we knew at that point. But little by little, more revelation occurred. Cain's name meant spear. Abel's name meant vanity. Seth, the line from whom the seed would come, his name was appointed one. 
we know from Isaiah that a child was predicted to come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. A coming child. The Jews called him the Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ. Both words mean the same. The anointed one, the coming one, the prophesied one, this, this offspring, this child. This child is going to be the Almighty God. This child is going to be the everlasting Father. And then the moment came. When for eternity past, Jesus was in heaven. The moment came, even in heaven, a moment came in which Jesus made the decision to leave paradise and to come to this earth. From Hebrews we read this. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And in that instant, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And he entered into the womb of the woman to do the will of his Father, which was to take on that body and to take that body ultimately, 33 years later, to the cross. Since the wages of our sin is death, Jesus would allow his body to be killed on that cross according to God's will as payment for the sins of the world. And so we see that Jesus, God, in the person of Christ, became a person. Now, can you possibly say that God is not a personal God when God became a person? You know, another thought is God created people. You know, I love this passage. You were created, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Now that's a personal God. He's with you when you awake. His thoughts toward you outnumber the sands. And you know, it's not that difficult for me. I believe that God created the universe. Why is it any more difficult that his thoughts toward me would outnumber the grains of sand on the, on the ocean? They both seem pretty impossible to me. But that's the God we create. And the only reason we wouldn't believe in a God or a personal God is because we've reduced God to something less than he really is. But if we see God as the Bible teaches, if we see him as he is, we will worship God and we'll see him as a personal God as well. And God is a God that loves us. You know, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who can tempt it in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Our great God has been tempted as we. 
he relates, he sympathizes with us. Again, another way that he's a personal God. But the very hairs of your head are numbered, Jesus told his disciples. Imagine that, the very, the very number. Now for some of us, that's not that difficult a task, to number our hairs. But for others of us, that can be pretty challenging. In any case, whoever you are, God has those numbered. And not just yours, but the guy next to yours, next to you. You know, this verse, right after Matthew 10, this is Matthew 10, 29, it's Matthew 10, 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Think of that. You know, if a sparrow is even uh, just as inexpensive as a half a cent, and yet God knows when he falls to the ground, there's a lot of sparrows out there. And yet God knows when each one were to fall to the ground. How much more so, he says, will he know about the needs, the concerns, all the issues that you face in your life. And then this one is that next point I'd like to make is just that God communicates with us. I like this verse, Ephesians 6.17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now there's two words for the word word. One is uh, the word logos, and one Greek word is the word rhema. And it's interesting that even in the, in the Bible, either of these words are used. Now, in this case, the red word in this verse, Ephesians 6, 17, is not the word logos. The word logos, it just means any word in the Bible is a logos. This Bible is full of logoses. <laughs> But this word is the word rhema. And the word rhema means a specific word for the time of a specific need. It's when a particular verse speaks to you in a very special particular way. Now this is the word that is used in Ephesians 6.17. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which are the rhemas God has given you personally. Are those verses that God has given you that you just really connect with. I'll give you two examples of Remus tonight. I think mom has shared with me, and my mom is here tonight, one of her Remus is Psalm 46.1, a verse that I know has meant a lot to her over the years because she has shared this with me many times. God is a refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Now those could just be Logos's words on a page, but when they connect with your soul, connect with your spirit, in a meaningful way, they become Remus. They become Remus. God's communication to you. You see, God communicates to you and to me. He wants to impress us with truths from his scripture in very personal ways. Here's one that's spoken to me this fall. Kind of one of my Remus for the fall. No temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he'll provide a means of escape. 
Now I think this is an amazing verse. There's been times I've read that verse and it's been nothing but a logos to me. But this fall that verse came alive in special ways because of various trials, temptations, difficulties, challenges. That's what that word temptation means, all those words together. I was faced with various challenges, more so maybe this fall than in other times past. No temptation though has overtaken me and sometimes in the midst of your dark moments, maybe those sleepless nights, you wake up in the middle of the night and uh, try not to wake up your better half over there. But sometimes you're kind of thinking, now, does God really know I'm going through this? Does God really see me? You know, really, does he really have all those thoughts like the grain of the sand toward me? Maybe he is just that guy that created this universe and everything in it. I don't know. Sometimes I've questioned that. But you know, I go back to this verse and verses like it and I'm reminded even in those dark moments and that these logos has become remus to me in those times when I choose by faith to believe them. That no temptation is overtaken. In other words, God is allowed and chooses difficulties. He's not going to keep us from being tested and challenged. That's how he'll make us strong. But it does seem to suggest he'll limit those challenges. He'll kind of gauge them. He'll limit the intensity of those challenges to the point that he knows we can still handle them. Maybe you're going through a challenge, a difficulty. Hey, you can be encouraged knowing that God considers you capable by his grace to endure that challenge or he would not have allowed it into your life. That thought has helped me and encouraged me at times. But God will actually filter these challenges in our life. That's a personal God. Not only does He know my challenges, He can actually limit the intensities and make sure that I'm capable and able to face what's put before me in my life. And it goes on. And God is faithful. He'll not allow me to be tempted. He'll even provide an avenue of escape in whatever trial or whatever challenge we face. That's, that's a great and personal God. Romans 8.28 says that, uh, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. That's a great and personal God who sees you, who knows you. Now my friend on that bus years ago, uh, you know, God wasn't just going to take that testing, that trial away. Uh, no, He was going to give him the strength to endure it. You know, we're not still on that bus. Somewhere along the line, God did provide a way out. I'm not sure what it was or how long it took, but we got that way out. And the fact that God didn't answer that prayer in five minutes doesn't speak to their not being a personal God. The fact that He doesn't answer your prayers as fast as you might hope doesn't speak to their not being a personal God. He loves us. He knows what we need. He knows what temptations we need to build what qualities of character in our life need to be built. And He'll faithfully pursue that in our life, each of us, individually, uniquely, until the day we see Him face to face. And it says in that day we will be like Him perfectly because we will see Him just as He is. And so we conclude that our God is a personal God, that our God loves you, that He loves me, that He thoughts towards you outnumber the grains of the sand, each of us, and you can know that He's there with you every morning when you wake up, 
It's so exciting to know that this personal God is also the creator of the universe. For our God, we can put together power and love. A good friend of mine who grew up in the, uh, in the, in the uh, Muslim tradition, a 10,000 vill- uh, person village in Liberia, Tony Weedor, he said, Tim, I know the Koran as well as I know the Bible. I was going to be the imam of my village. But I can tell you, there's nowhere in the Koran that it ever refers to God as Father. And I was just really intrigued by that. Because our Bible is filled with them. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's a personal God that we can call Father. And so I pray that God will only, this Christmas season, enhance our understanding and our trust and faith that He is a God that uh, loves us and desires for us to have a personal relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this time together with everyone here tonight. Uh, Lord, we do love you. We know that you're a great and awesome God that deserves every ounce of respect and worship that we can muster. But you're also a personal God that loves us individually and is mindful that we are but dust. And you have great and glorious plans for each one of us. Lord, help us never doubt the fact that you see me, that you love me, and that you love each one of us in this room in a personal way. So, Lord, we commit this holiday season to you. Help us all reflect on all that you are and all that you mean to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, while Dennis and the band comes up, I'm going to go ahead and start the candles. You know, I've got to say that, um, you know, these, uh, it says in the Bible that Jesus is the light of the world. And uh, he came into the world and the world didn't understand it. And I think the world does lie in darkness. But from that one light in Bethlehem so many years ago, that light spread, light by light, candle by candle. And with each person's acceptance of Jesus as their Savior, His kingdom advanced. And tonight we're just going to reflect the advancing of God's kingdom through faith and with these candles as we sing uh, the song Silent Night. Dennis will lead that and I'll go ahead and start the first candle. And as your candle is lit, folks just go ahead and pass it to the person next to you and behind you and we'll fill up our room with lit candles here as we sing Silent Night. All right? Praise the Lord.